Hello and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. This week's episode was originally meant to be about the land reform campaign as well as a couple of other campaigns that took place in urban areas. However, I've decided to switch up a little bit. I realised that I had scheduled an episode about propaganda and explaining what propaganda was, how it was used and how it integrated into mass campaigns about three weeks after this episode, which was supposed to be about mass campaigns. And it kind of dawned on me that that didn't really make any sense because I would be telling you what a campaign was and then afterwards explaining how it worked. So I decided to just flip those two over. So this week we'll be talking about propaganda and mass mobilisation techniques that were used in Maoist China and it will serve as a reference point for future episodes when we'll be talking about the more specific policies and mass campaigns in more detail. I hope that explanation makes sense, so let's get into the episode. Mass campaigns were the cornerstone of the CCP's rule during the Maoist era. They were used to spread information about policies, inculcate the masses with the correct understanding of communist ideology, and, probably most importantly, mobilise the people and get the public involved in different schemes to support the so-called building of the nation. In this episode, I want to give an outline of the basic structure of a typical mass campaign using the case of a lesser-known mass mobilisation effort made by the CCP from 1949 to 1952. The example that I'll be using is called the Anti-Unity Sect Campaign. That title doesn't make a lot of sense right now, but it will later. The reason that I want to use this one, and not one of the bigger or more famous campaigns, is because this one is actually a really good illustration of the mechanics of propaganda and mobilisation. It was quite contained and short, and it shows how the party would manipulate a cause, in this case religion and anti-religious sentiment, for their own means, which here is the consolidation of power and the testing of mass mobilisation tactics in the field. Also, just a quick warning, the words mass, campaign, propaganda and mobilisation are going to be used a lot in this episode. Apologies in advance. If we understand the basic mode of a typical Maoist mass campaign now, in later episodes you'll get a better idea of why mass campaigns were necessary for basically every single policy or new idea that the party had. As almost every event in Mao's China was accompanied by a corresponding campaign, this is quite fundamental stuff. Every mass campaign featured basically the same elements a huge push in written, visual and sometimes audio propaganda, the training and organisation of cadres from the central level down to the local level, and a continuous reporting back to the centre about the strengths and weaknesses of the campaign as it was being carried out. Violence was not a necessary feature, but it was probably more common than not, especially in the larger campaigns, and in some cases it actually ended up being called for, especially in nationwide campaigns that encompassed discussions around class and economic rights. You've probably heard of the Great Leap Forward or the Cultural Revolution. Those are the sorts of cases where violence was actually called for by the central government, but then things quickly got out of control due to the large scale and nature of the campaign. In the early years of the regime, however, the CCP had things a little better under control. Okay, so first we're going to go through and explain how each of the basic elements of a mass campaign worked, starting with propaganda. The role of propaganda was to persuade people to take part in political campaigns voluntarily by teaching them the benefits of socialism. 
There were three main categories, written, visual and audio, though there were obviously overlaps in terms of types. Written propaganda was basically books and newspapers. It had an inbuilt disadvantage in that it required high rates of literacy for mass circulation, which, as we discussed in the previous episode, did not exist in China at the time. Nevertheless, the circulation of newspapers quadrupled between 1950 and 1956, and that number quadrupled once again between 1956 and 1957. By 1959, there were 1,455 different newspapers in circulation in China. Many papers formed during the 1950s are actually still in circulation today, the most notable and influential being the People's Daily, which is often referred to as the mouthpiece of the party. Newspaper circulation managed to reach beyond urban areas as part of the CCP's aim to increase participation in mass collectivization campaigns in the mid-1950s. It is doubtful, however, that this rise was due to a sudden uptake in newspaper reading in villages. Generally speaking, China was too illiterate and too economically undeveloped to generate a sustained interest in something like newspapers, which required some level of intellectual sophistication. Newspapers remained a medium for the middle and upper classes, and books followed basically the same pattern. Radio broadcasting capabilities were expanded over the course of the 1950s to penetrate deeper into the countryside. The CCP had been using radio as a propaganda tool since World War II, and by 1955 there were around 10,000 radio receiving stations in the agricultural and fishing cooperatives in China proper. Radio was a great alternative to newspaper, as it could deliver the same messages, but didn't require any sort of reading. Radio broadcasts also probably didn't give people time to try and interpret what they were hearing, unlike newspapers where, when you're reading, you sort of interpret things as you go along. In terms of art, formats include drama, opera, songs, propaganda paintings, street corner shows, comics, and cartoons. The use of cartoons and comics as a form of mass communication was kind of a clever way to ensure that not all printed media relied on written formats, which, like radio, meant that people could receive the message more easily. Film and stage performances were the most effective for reaching the majority of people, as they combined both audio and visual content, without the need for reading. Sometimes the CCP would build upon what already existed, combining traditional and modern media to appeal to as wide an audience as possible. For example, they would take something called yanga, which is a type of planting song that people would sing while they were planting the fields, and minga, which just means folk songs, and then they would adapt them into new songs that were written about communist heroes or some songs that were taken from popular revolutionary dramas. Because of technical limitations, in the countryside they often showed something called lantern shows instead of films. But these lantern shows were still very well received as it was a source of excitement for everyone. They didn't really get to see that kind of thing very often. So those are the different types of propaganda that were commonly used early on in the PRC. Like I said, the basic purpose of propaganda was to carry out something called mass persuasion. Scholar Alan Liu breaks down the CCP's conception of mass persuasion into four principles. Insulation, in other words, keeping people confined to one area. Emotional arousal, creating emotional tension. Simplification, which is straightforward explanation over any sort of subtlety. And politicization, the automatic use of ideological concepts to interpret one's own experience. 
Once insulated, or isolated, in these communities, the party could carry out work on the people to realise one of the most important goals of propaganda, which was the development of class consciousness. The emotional arousal aspect basically meant that communists were looking for more than passive subjects. They wanted converts and believers, not just sceptical or opportunistic followers. According to Lenin, class consciousness was more than the idea of belonging to a class. It was something much more active that had to be brought to the fore by the vanguard, in other words, the Communist Party. This was the interpretation that the CCP adopted. The concept of simplification reflects another central ideological policy of the CCP, that of the mass line. The mass line is the policy of ensuring that any action taken by the party originates from or is sanctioned by the people. This, again, is supposed to be an active process that requires members of the party to communicate with the masses, which was something that was greatly encouraged by Mao, for example, in this quote. We should go to the masses and learn from them synthesize their experience into better articulated principles and methods, then do propaganda among the masses and call upon them to put these principles and methods into practice so as to solve their problems and help them achieve liberation and happiness. Unquote. According to Mao, ideas and policies should be extracted from among the people and then transformed later into propaganda. The more difficult principle was that of politicization the interpretation of one's own experience using political ideology. This could be particularly complex for less intellectually sophisticated and illiterate members of the population. It also required a level of differentiation that many people would have initially hesitated at. In a village where people have lived side by side for their entire lives, and over multiple generations, They now had to understand their neighbours as rich peasants and landlords, who, by employing them from time to time, had caused them to be poor peasants, and were thus the architects of their poverty. This is why propaganda was so crucial, and the way in which it was made and disseminated was so important. It had a very huge goal, colossal even, of re-educating the people to understand the truth of their situation and the necessity of class struggle. Okay, so that covers the types of propaganda and their roles. Let's talk about how mass campaigns were organised, and then we'll talk about the example of the anti-unity sect campaign. The average political campaign in China was formulated by the party's leadership and typically divided into three stages, national, provincial and municipal. At the national level, the main leaders of the campaign were identified, organised and trained up and, if necessary, any targets of the campaign were designated. Once the campaign was ready to be publicly announced, special cadres were trained at the provincial level to be dispatched to cities and counties to direct local campaign operations. Finally, these cadres went into rural towns and cities to train and supervise local cadres while organising local activists who could also be used to sort of prevent the movement from stagnating at the bureaucratic level. It was sort of like a trickle-down system. The use of cadres specially trained to carry out and oversee such a campaign also meant that the party could reach every member of society without having to go through provincial or local cadres who were entrenched in the more day-to-day administrative tasks of running the country. These tactics and policies often boil down to the goal of, like I said before, mass mobilisation, namely involving the masses directly in political campaigns. 
However, according to some scholars, this tactic meant that there was often a disconnect between the propaganda being produced and the people who were doing the mobilising. As the education programme worked its way down from the high-level leadership to municipal and district governments, and then finally to state-employed report-givers and propagandists and activists, by the time the final group was scheduled to receive their education, there was often little time left because the district government and work units were well behind in their training and campaign timetables, so they basically had to find ad hoc solutions to avoid holding up the entire process, and many local governments then chose to further reduce training schedules from grassroots operatives to an absolute minimum. Thus, sometimes the lowest level officials and campaigners knew very little about the situation and the details of the policy, and they were kind of just making it up as they went along. Or even worse, they were interpreting the policy or ideology however they saw fit. This wasn't such an issue for single-issue campaigns, but it became a bigger issue later on when we get to the national campaigns like the Cultural Revolution. The anti-unity sect, however, was just the ideal single-issue campaign for us to talk about. If anything, it was a model campaign that perfectly illustrates all the things we've talked about already. I love it when a plan comes together. In January 1949, the CCP announced a ban on what they considered to be superstitious sects and secret societies. And in 1950, they launched an all-out attack on the influential North China Unity Sect, as it was perceived to be a major threat to the newly established PRC. The Unity Sect was founded in the late Qing Dynasty, as a syncretic religion that incorporated doctrines from multiple Asian religions, including Confucianism, Buddhism and Taoism, as well as Christianity and Islam. It also had some doomsday-like cult elements, for example, espousing the idea that the world is descending into chaos, which technically at the time was true, and that joining the sect was one way to avoid disaster. During the post-war period, the Kuomintang, or nationalist government, sort of took over the sect after its leader was arrested, and they turned it into a charitable society called the China Moral Philanthropic Association. But this basically doomed the sect because they ended up being associated with the KMT and once the CCP took over, that meant that you would eventually be labelled a traitor or a spy. The specific concerns the CCP had for the unity sect were its popularity, rapid growth, esoteric practices, penetration into the party and their general anti-communist sentiment. In certain northern provinces, membership in the sect could reach 11 to 15% of the provincial population, and it was spreading fast. In 1950, there were an estimated 100,000 members in the Beijing municipal area alone. However, members were often hard to detect, as not all of their practices were well known, and they weren't easily identifiable, which meant that the party didn't learn till much later that many party members and civil servants were actually members of the unity sect as well despite their rhetoric that the communists would require people to share property and wives. The problems were pretty self-evident, and the suppression was harsh. The campaign to suppress the unity sect closely followed the stages of a political campaign outlined. First, the CCP portrayed the unity sect as politically subversive and associated it with the exploitative class, namely people associated with the nationalist government and also those who had bad class backgrounds, such as rich peasants, landlords and capitalists. 
This is why in the early phase of the campaign, the policy was to arrest the leaders, prevent meetings, dismantle networks, and then just register ordinary members. However, violence was soon called for by those who were warning against right-leaning tendencies. In 1951, around 500 leaders of the movement were shot and executed. The public was also called upon to act as informants and spies, reporting to authorities any activities they saw to do with the sect. Specific security forces were trained to hunt down the anti-unity sect and to collect information from informants, and there were also specially trained propagandists who were to spread state-run media about the anti-unity sect campaign across the country. Mass media was completely oriented towards covering and supporting the campaign. The party used both traditional means, such as the Yanga dances that we discussed earlier, cartoons in national newspapers like the People's Daily, radio broadcasts, and they even made a film called Yiguan Hairen Dao, or A Reactionary Sect. All of these media were aimed at exposing the crimes of the sect, which ranged from stealing members' money to raping female initiates to being spies against the state. Within the mass persuasion model discussed earlier, this would encompass emotional arousal and, to a lesser extent, simplification. The party also amassed a bunch of physical evidence, giving exhibitions in public spaces like parks to show what items the sect had stolen, documents proving links between the sects and the nationalists, and examples of their licentious and deceptive behaviour. These exhibitions were apparently extremely popular, no doubt because they were held in already popular leisure areas or busy street corners. The final tool used by the CCP in this case was something called public trials. They were essentially show trials, similar to those that you've probably heard about that happened in the Soviet Union. They were mainly so that the public could get involved, and it was mainly used to encourage local communities to oppose the sect. The criminal would be knelt down in the centre of a stage, berated by their accusers, and then jeered at by the audience. Often, the accused was later sentenced to death. The campaign was a success, for the most part. There were some problems in finding appropriate propagandists from good class backgrounds, and further problems in actually identifying the members of the sect. Urban penetration was much better than rural, and many organisers complained that the gatherings and show trials that were haphazardly organised often led to contrary results. However, as scholar Hung Changtai points out, the overall goal of the campaign, and other similar mass mobilisation campaigns, was about more than just the immediate outcome. It wasn't just an anti-religious crusade, it was a crusade to politicise the masses. A sort of crash course in class consciousness. Most media was aimed at peasants, who were to be the leading force in toppling the oppressive, slightly capitalist system that had been developing in China, and that the party sought to overcome by introducing socialism. The CCP were killing two birds with one stone. They were, on the one hand, getting rid of an internal threat, and on the other, shoring up their own legitimacy. If anything, the practice of mass mobilisation and dissemination of propaganda so early on in the regime allowed the CCP to identify the strengths and weaknesses of their systems, and these were probably the most important aspects of the campaign. As I've already said, and I know that I'm beating this point to death by now, not all campaigns followed this outline smoothly, especially after 1953, when the CCP had effectively established control over the entire country, allowing them to hold fewer campaigns, 
that targeted specific groups and instead concentrate on campaigns that aimed at developing socialism and modernising the country broadly. I've probably harped on about this so much because my PhD thesis is actually all about propaganda posters and how they were integrated into mass campaigns and how they fulfilled the function that they were supposed to, in other words, the dissemination of key information. But the main thing that I wanted to take from my thesis and add in here was the idea of political culture. Political culture means, well, the clues in the name. It means that culture and society are more oriented towards politics and political expression and that politics in media, art, stories, education, etc. becomes the norm. Maoist China can be said to have had a very pronounced political culture, one in which the public was expected to inculcate political values and policies into their everyday lives and one in which political ideology was the mainstream in terms of any social or cultural sphere. People's work lives and private lives were meant to be politically oriented at all times, and we'll see that even more pronounced when we get on to future episodes. For now, over the course of the next few episodes, we'll be discussing the very first nationwide, all-encompassing mass campaigns that completely dominated society in every aspect, and were aimed at the complete transformation of the people from citizens into socialist workers and peasants. So that's it for this episode, guys. I feel like I don't do enough call to action stuff at the end of my episodes, but as we're talking about propaganda and mobilization, what better time than to ask you to rate this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to it on? Check out the website at sinobabble.com and write to me at info at sinobabble.com if you have any feedback or questions for me. I love hearing from you guys, no matter what it's about. For example, if you love the podcast and you just want to let me know, but you also want to add that the audio is too quiet, that's absolutely fine. I hope that's fixed now, by the way. Thanks so much for listening, guys, and I hope you tune in next time.